Yes, on the one hand, God is the one who drives our maturity if he permits it, but we play a role. We must do our part. We cannot be lazy. We cannot be slothful. We cannot be dull. We need to be diligent, as Hebrews 5 and verse 12 says. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the third of a three-part series entitled, Growing Up in Christ. From Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, Dr. Brogy is showing the importance the author of the book places on persistent pursuit of spiritual maturity in the lives of believers. Today's message is entitled, God's Call to Grow. In our text, we see from both Hebrews and the Exodus that even 21st century Christians are called to press on to spiritual maturity. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, you know that God uses these Jewish Christians as a type, as an illustration of those who came out of Egypt. God saved the Jewish people out of Egypt with his strong and mighty hand in order to deliver them into the promised land. And that journey that should have taken 11 days took approximately 40 years. They lost their way, not because they lost their map, but because they lost perspective. And they lost perspective because they had become dull of hearing, and they were dull of hearing because of their unbelief. And so they came to the edge of the promised land, and not Moses' idea, it was God's command. God said to Moses, send 12 spies into the land, not to see if you can take it. He promised it, but how they were going to take it. And of course, if you remember, those 12 men came back, only two, Joshua and Caleb, believed the promise of God that in spite of the huge obstacles in entering the land, they knew that God would be faithful. They were sharp in their hearing. The other 10 were dull. And so the people believed the majority report. And so what did they say? They came to Moses and said, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And by the way, it is this very illustration that Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 2 uses as an example of the truth that the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They did not want to press on. They wanted to go back. And so God said, you shall not enter my rest. You're not going to enter into the blessings of the promised land. It did not mean that these people, when they died in the wilderness, went to hell. It means they just did not enjoy the blessings of the promised land. And this same kind of warning is being given to these Hebrew Christians, and by application, everyone within the sound of my voice, if God permits... Let us press on to maturity. Now, I don't think it's accidental, if you read the Exodus account, that the exact same five advantages that these Hebrew Christians had, they had back there in Moses' day. And again, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the message because I enumerate them. But in spite of the privileges... They were not pressing on to maturity. They missed God's best because they had become dull in their hearing. Now remember, these were people who had been redeemed by blood, with the blood of a lamb. And it was symbolic, of course, of the Messiah's blood who would offer himself on a cross. They were still redeemed from Egypt, 
but they fell away from the land and they died in the wilderness, everyone 20 years and up with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And the saddest thing is that when they heard Moses preach the next day of the consequences of their unbelief, they don't repent. They don't, oh, they want to repent, but they can't repent. Moses said, look, you're not going to go into the promise. Oh, Moses, we're so sorry. We are so sorry. We were wrong. You and God were absolutely right. Now, did it mean they were lost? No. God said in Numbers 14, I have pardoned them according to your word. But listen to these sobering words. We didn't read them last week from Numbers 14. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are, we have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. And of course, God said it's too late because you did not come on my terms. So it was impossible to renew them to repentance. God forgave them, but he let them live with the consequences of their decisions for the next 40 years. Now let me bring it here to Hebrews 6. These Jewish Christians had come to a Kadesh Barnea of sorts. They were going to have to make a decision to press on to maturity. And if they didn't, they would come to the point where they couldn't press on to maturity. You see, repentance allows the unbeliever to come into a right relationship with God. It is equally true for the saved person. Repentance allows the child of God to come back and experience the genuine blessings of God. Just read the seven churches of the Revelation as we studied them a few years ago. But listen, you can't flirt with sin and just say, when I'm good and ready and I've had, quote-unquote, my fun, I'm going to get right with God. When you do that, you become calloused. And when you do that, according to verse 6, if you do it long enough, God says, they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, remember, these Hebrew believers are under great persecution. And so in order to escape persecution from their fellow Jews, they go back and outwardly act very Jewish. That's the, one of the major messages running through the book. They go back and they participate in temple worship. And every time, for instance, they had an animal or an offering sacrificed on their behalf, in essence, they were making Christ's death to them as meaningless and insufficient. They were putting him to open shame. And in God's eyes, this was not a small thing. This was a wicked thing. Why did they do it? Because they wanted peace. They wanted to be liked. They wanted everything with their family and friends to be okay. And people are no different today. Many refuse to mature. And sometimes they choose not to mature and that they don't want to know any more truth. Some people come to this church. I call every visitor if they'll leave a phone number. I'll call you online. You leave your phone number, I'll try to call you. And sometimes someone will say, it's too heavy for me. It's too much Bible for me. And some people, they don't want to know the truth. Because when you know the truth and you do nothing with the truth, you are still accountable. Some people don't press on, they blow off the Lord's day. I know this is COVID, but I'm talking about before COVID. Ah, it's rainy, it's cold. Who wants to go to church? Let's just sleep in. 
Sometimes they dismiss going on to maturity because of a pet sin. They just want to cling to it. They want to enjoy it. They want to hold on to it. Or sometimes they don't like the reaction. You get too serious with Christ. Some of your friends you used to hang with, associate with, maybe play golf with, other things with, they're not interested in you anymore because you're too serious. And if you persist long enough in this spirit, you can reach a point where it's impossible to renew you to repentance. Like Israel of old, who could not go into the promised land, a believer in this age can reach a point where God will just shelve the individual. Why? Because they lose all their desire. You think you come to Christ independently of the living God? No, you don't. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. God Almighty is the one who sparked the desire for you to know the things of God. And when you're born again, everything that happens by his doing, we're in Christ Jesus. And our sanctification is by the Spirit of God. And you put God off long enough, you'll lose all desire. And I'm convinced some people that I've tried to help over and over and over, it's just impossible to help them. They'll never go on to maturity. Why? Because God has just shelved them. And when you refuse to go on, you align yourself with those who say, away with him, crucify him. You see, those who say that this is a passage exhorting the lost to get saved, they have an assumption that repentance here is in reference to the lost person, but it is not. Just like in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation and many other instances in the New Testament, this is saved repentance. And so in verses 7 and 8, he is not talking about the root of salvation. He's dealing with the fruit of salvation, as he will bring out in our text today the things that accompany salvation. So speaking of the possibility of losing one's reward, verse 7 For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. That's describing the fruit of a believer who's pressing on to maturity. But by contrast, the sluggard, dull Christian, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed And it ends up being burned. He's not talking about the fire of hell, but the fire of the judgment seat of Christ where every believer's works will be tested. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. The quality of each man's work, the scripture says, will be tested with fire. So some Christians, they live in immaturity. Why? Because they don't want to be in hostility with the world. They want a peace. They want to be liked. Listen, if you've got a high school student and he's headed off to the university, there is going to be solid, constant, unrelenting opposition for the born-again believer, both by the professors and by the fellow students. Please notice it. It, I have it circled in my Bible three times. It yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless and close to being cursed. It ends up being burned. It refers back to the vegetation mentioned in verse 7. Not the life being burned in hell, but the fruit of that life is worthless. It's like wood, hay, and stubble. Their salvation is not in jeopardy, but their eternal reward is once they get to heaven. Now, that's just the introduction. That's the review. 
And I felt the need to recap it because unless you have that firm in your thinking, you will not be able to appreciate what follows. So the writer now reminds us of three dimensions of God's character that should spur us on to maturity. If you're using your note-taking outline, first, he reminds us that God deals justly with his people. He encourages us to press on. Why? Because God deals justly with his people. Now, after this strong warning, it would be easy to think, wow, I wonder if this warning that he just gave in verse 6 applies to me. Maybe I've crossed the line and my life is being illustrated in verse 8. Well, the answer for these Christians, if they're asking that question, comes in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Now, if you've been reading God's Word carefully, then you've picked up the change in pronouns throughout these three paragraphs. I have them all circled. In verses 1 to 3, he uses the first-person plural pronoun. And so in verse 1, he says, let us press on to maturity. Then you'll notice in verse 3, again, the first-person plural, this we shall do if God permits. And by the way, by using the first-person plural, he includes himself. He, by the Spirit of God, by the inspiration of God, is writing a book of the Bible, but he recognizes that he too must press on, that he still needed to grow. Listen, we need to be constantly growing until God takes us home by death or by rapture. But then what's interesting, when you come to verses 4 through 8, he uses a third personal pronoun. Again, I have them all circled. They, those, them, themselves. Yet when you come to verses 9 through 12, the pronouns change a third time to the second person plural, you and your. So of these Christians, he is convinced of better things about the things that accompany salvation. Even though he's saying, I've been speaking in a very stern way towards you, brethren, I'm convinced of better things for you. He believes they had not yet reached the point where it was impossible to renew them to repentance. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit, he is convinced that they did not need to leave permanently in a spiritual wasteland. Now, verse 10 begins with a little three-letter word for. It's the Greek word gar. It's what linguists call an explanatory gar, meaning what I am about to tell you in verse 10 is an explanation of what I just said in verse 9 follow it. He is convinced of better things for them. Why? For God, here's the explanation, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Now, do you see the contrast between the word of warning here in verse 6 and this word of encouragement here in verse 10? He does not want the serious warning in verse 6 to obscure the promise of verse 10. He doesn't want them to think that, that, that they are going to live in this wasteland forever. Now, God deals justly, and just as God will deal justly with a person who pursues immaturity, God can equally deal justly with a believer who wants to press on and please God. And so, with this affirmation, he gives not three vague generalities, but three specific ways by which they can please the Lord. God, number one, justly receives their devotion. God justly receives their devotion. The first 
reason their work can please God is because God is just and God can justly receive their devotion. Now, they were devoted in their work. They were not just Christians performing a task, but they were doing a service out of a heart of love. Notice he speaks in verse 10 of the work and the love you have shown. You know, there are Christians who do their ministry for the Lord because they have to. And then there are Christians who do their work for the Lord because they want to. You see, when you serve the saints, you're serving the Lord. That's what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse. He said in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, you know, contextually, he's talking about the way the Gentile nations of the world will treat the Jews. And those Gentiles who are true believers will show the Jews kindness, and so they'll be brought into the kingdom. He's dealing with the fruit, not the root of salvation. And those Gentile nations that despise the Jews, they will go into a place of eternal retribution. But you can take that statement, because it's taught in other places in the Bible, and apply it to the church, that whenever you serve the Lord Jesus... You are Lord Jesus' people. You're serving the Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He had never laid a hand on Jesus, but every time he laid a hand on God's people, he was laying a hand on Jesus. So it is true sometimes that we do things, not because it's our favorite thing to do, but out of love for the brethren, we do it. Now, sadly, some do things just out of a sense of obligation, and the driving motivation in their heart is not the pleasure of serving the people of God, but it's just something that they're supposed to do. Some people are asked to serve in the nursery, and they love it, and they're willing to do it, and they care for those little children. And a mark of Christ-likeness is the way you treat children. Jesus said it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the deepest sea than to hurt a little child. And we've got politicians who are arguing one day before the baby's born. It's a this year's democratic platform. You can kill that innocent baby. Friend, that is reprehensible to the living God. So some people, they serve because they have to, but some out of a great heart of love. And that's what these people were known for. Out of love, they were serving the saints. But there's a second reason that God can deal with them justly. God justly receives their persistence. He justly receives their persistence. They serve these saints out of love, but they also had not just a devotion, but a persistent service. Notice, having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. There's a lot of believers who start a task, start a ministry, but they never finish it. They grow weary of the work. Why? Because they grow weary of people. And usually when you find yourself growing weary of God's people, it means that you've grown weary of God. It means your love for God is low. I spent an hour on the phone this week at a Zoom conference call with three pastors who are just covered over in discouragement. Just so discouraged. I said, welcome to my world. You live in a day like this, and you're not going to receive a lot of affirmation from God's people. And if you're living for the affirmation of God's people, you won't last long in the ministry. And so he is reminding them, notice verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown. 
A love for God always expresses itself in service for the saints. Don't tell me you love Christ and you're not a member of a Bible-believing New Testament church where you can serve the people of God. And what God says here is that the love you show is never forgotten. He sees it all. And this is a serious blessing. This is a serious reminder that God watches everything that we do. Look, God in his justice cannot ignore the apathy of some believers. Equally said, God in his justice cannot ignore the service of other believers. He doesn't overlook their devotion. So number one, he saw their devotion. He saw their persistence. But God also saw their attitude. He saw their attitude. God justly receives their attitude. Let me read further into verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name. All the labor they had done, they had done towards his name. And understand, while work will be rewarded... The work that God rewards that he counts as gold, silver, and precious stone is done towards his name. And if you follow that phrase through the New Testament, you could paraphrase it. It is done for his glory. If you're serving God to be a showboat and to get a pat on the back, it's not towards his name. God sees everything that he that we do and that's an important truth because the fact is is that most of God's people in this day of celebrity Christianity serve in obscurity they don't serve in the limelight they serve behind the scenes and even those who serve in a very public and prominent way if they're doing anything worthwhile for God most of their labor you never ever will see It's the hidden life that makes the public life worthwhile. And when no one says to you, hey, it's really good job, or thank you so much for being faithful, week after week after week, if you're doing it for the glory of God, there will be great reward. Devoted work, persistent work, to the glory of God in God's justice is noticed, and the judgment of the just will be rewarded. So he starts here reminding us that God deals with us justly. Secondly, he reminds us that God deals with us generously. God deals generously with his people. Please notice how verse 11 begins. And we desire that each one of you... Now he's getting very specific. He's been dealing with them as a whole. Now he wants to deal with them as individuals. Now, God's generosity should change us, and he gives us three specific ways in which God's generosity should change us. Number one, God's generosity should lead us to be diligent. It should lead us to be diligent. Let me read all of verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, he encourages them to show the same diligence, which should cause you as a careful reader of Scripture to ask the same diligence as what? The same diligence they had been showing in ministering and in still ministering to the saints. He's like a coach. He's encouraging them to press on. And hope, of course, speaks of the guaranteed future certainty that God has for them. And so they are to keep up this good work. They are to press on with hope until the end. Now, listen, if your hope is in this world, if you're living only for this life only, you're much to be pitied. 
Because listen, this world is not going to get better and better. The Bible teaches in the end, it's going to become like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. It's going to get worse and worse. And ultimately, God's going to burn the entire planet with fire before he creates a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so he's asking them to think, and by application, all of us, to show the same diligence and enthusiasm that they began with and to carry it all the way to the end which for them, if you've read the book of Hebrews, it means a clean and definitive break from temple worship, that they needed to identify, even at the cost of being persecuted, with the church and the body of Christ in the name of Jesus. Remain faithful into the end because God deals with you generously, and his generosity should lead you to be diligent. Secondly, God's generosity should lead us not to be sluggish. It should lead us not to be sluggish. Now, God's desire is further expressed in verse 12 for them, that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and practice inherit the promises. Now, we've seen this word sluggish in Hebrews. Hebrews 5.11. There, if you remember, it was translated dull. It's the Greek word nothros. It means thick, slow, sluggish, lazy. And in the realm of hearing, it's translated dull. In the realm of service, it's translated sluggish. It's used outside of the Bible in first century Koine Greek of a lion whose limbs are weak and deformed and no push. Likewise, it's used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of Proverbs, to describe the sluggard, the lazy man. Here he's saying, do not be sluggish. And again, if you've read the book of Hebrews, the source of their discouragement, it was discouragement that made them sluggish. And that discouragement was rooted in persecution. And again, I would just say to you, you need to press on because if you don't press on to maturity, you won't go on. You'll just quit. You'll become sluggish. And if you are living for the encouragement of others, as I told these three pastors, you're not going to make it. They're all in their 30s. Said, you're not going to make it. You will just quit. You will never make it. You need to let God encourage your heart even when your congregation is not behind you. I think it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible of King David in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6. Moreover, David, the Bible says, was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Listen, it's a blessing when others encourage you. But listen, many times you will be misunderstood, pastor or no pastor. You will be misunderstood. They will just totally miss it. Won't even understand the wavelength you're on. And you need to encourage yourself. How do you do that? He's already told us in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. By getting your head in this book. Yes, on the one hand, God is the one who drives our maturity if he permits it. But we play a role. We must do our part. We cannot be lazy. We cannot be slothful. We cannot be dull. We need to be diligent, as Hebrews 5 and verse 12 says. Tomorrow, when we conclude our message, God's Call to Grow, we will see that some of the Hebrew believers were growing dull because they were being persecuted. This is critical in our day and age because the times in which we live are seeing a rise in persecution. And so we need to stay spiritually sharp as we face circumstances similar to first century believers.
To listen again to today's message or any of the other messages in our series, Growing Up in Christ, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting programs GIC1, GIC2, or today's message, GIC3. Our calling at Search the Scriptures is to lead unbelievers into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to grow believers in that relationship. If you can help support this mission with a one-time or regular gift, click the Give button in either the Search the Scriptures app or our website, searchthescriptures.org, or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, the final message in our series, Growing Up in Christ. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. (music) 